are a ton of great new reads that you should probably <laughs> snag uh, before that weekend getaway. And here to walk us through those reads, a pair of New York Times best-selling authors, <laughs> Isaac Fitzgerald, Chin Julie Wang. Good morning to both of you. Good morning. You guys always bring fantastic picks, so let's <laughs> dig right in. Let's start with your pick for fiction, Isaac. What are you reading right now? Absolutely. Gone to the Wolves by John Ray. It's one part coming-of-age novel, one part ode to friendship, and one part love story. It follows a group of friends as they go from Florida to L.A. to Scandinavia. And what is the through line? Uh-huh. Their love of metal music. This is for fans of great writing, literature, and rock and roll. It's so good. First of all, congratulations on the book. I see it's getting great press. Steve Woodward wrote the following about the book in the intro to his interview with you in Pop Matters. It's the most authentic and exhilarating novel about music I've read. Any music head, even those who aren't fans of the genre, will find plenty to enjoy here. There is so much in your novel that's about the mythology of metal and Norse mythology. The Wild Hunt even makes it in there. And religion and fairy tales. And you handle that brilliantly. It just works so well. Welcome John Verno from the Metal Mayhem ROC podcast and Tom Gelati from Shout It Out Loudcast. Now, Tom, you have to leave at five, so we have to we have to make sure we're done by five, right? I, if I could tell my doctor that heavy metal took precedence, <laughs> I'd do that. Well, it does. <laughs> I don't think it'll take till five, but I don't know. I mean, I, okay. I'm planning on having a good time. I've got wine. It's happy hour. I'm good. We're going to talk metal. It's going to be fun. Warning. This episode may inspire head-banging and manic guitar solos, otherwise known as shredding. Listen at your own risk. I got no problem breaking the rules. This is a rock and roll show. Rock is Lit! Hey Lit listeners, welcome to another episode of Rock is Lit, the first and still only podcast devoted to rock novels, brought to you by the Pantheon Podcast Network. Hey, I'm John Stewart, and you're listening to the Pantheon Network. You got that right, John. I'm your host, Christy Alexander-Hallberg, author of my own rock novel, Searching for Jimmy Page. For more info on the podcast, me, or Searching for Jimmy Page, Check out my website, christyalexanderhallberg.com. If you've got an idea for a future episode, maybe a favorite rock novel you want to see featured on the show, or you just want to connect, find me on Facebook at Christy Alexander Hallberg and Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Christy Hallberg. And you can email me at christyalexanderhallberg at gmail.com. I love hearing from all you lit listeners out there. If you enjoy the show, do me a solid and subscribe and leave a rating and comment on Good Pods and Apple Podcasts. Let's spread the word. As always, Wyatt, the Rock is Lit mascot, and I thank you for tuning in. Calling all metalheads out there in podcast land, have I got the novel and episode for you. John Ray is here to talk about his brand new novel, Gone to the Wolves. The novel follows three teenagers living on Florida's Gulf Coast in the late 1980s. All three come from unhappy homes of one sort or another, 
but forge a friendship centered around their love for metal. If you've been waiting for a novel to come along that treats metal with respect rather than parody, your wait is over. But even if you didn't grow up watching Headbangers Ball or hoarding Metallica or Slayer records, there's something in this novel and this episode for everyone. In the last segment, John Verno from the Metal Mayhem ROC podcast and Tom Gelati, co-host of Shout It Out Loudcast, school me on several subgenres of metal mentioned in Gone to the Wolves, including death, thrash, black, and glam metal. This should be a very loud conversation. But first, I'd like to welcome John Ray. John Ray is the author of Godsend, The Lost Time Accidents, Low Boy, Canaan's Tongue, and The Right Hand of Sleep, and has written about music for the New York Times Magazine, Esquire, and Spin. The recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Whiting Award, a Coleman Fellowship from the New York Public Library, and a Mary Ellen von der Heiden Fellowship from the American Academy in Berlin, he was named one of Granta's Best Young American Novelists in 2007. His most recent novel, Gone to the Wolves, was published in May 2023 by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Welcome to Rock is Lit, John. It is really good to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Christy. It's good to be here. So I start out each author interview with a round of a, a game I call Five Questions, just to get a sense. Alrighty. Yeah, just to get a sense of what music the authors are into, besides what shows up in their novels. Now, the mm-hmm. music in your novel, Gone to the Wolves, is firmly rooted in metal including several different subgenres of metal I didn't even know existed before I read the book. <laughs> but I know that when you were a kid growing up in Buffalo, you weren't really into metal. That came a bit later, as I understand it. At that time, you were listening to hardcore punk and even stuff like The Smiths. So I have no idea what your responses are going to be to the five-question <laughs> prompts. I am totally prepared to be surprised. I will do my best to befuddle and perplex you. All right. What music video made the biggest impression on you? The music video that made the biggest impression on me was it's actually a video that was in heavy rotation in the very first year of MTV. I have a very clear memory of when MTV first came out. My parents didn't even have cable, so I had to always go over to friends' houses and kind of mooch off their MTV. But I managed to get log in i don't know how many hundreds of hours probably that first year and there was a video that continues to haunt me but here's the funny thing i i don't remember the name of the band and i think i know the name of the song but it was i it plays on the sort of like the, the screen in my subconscious when i least expect it to it was kind of like a maybe sort of a new wave-ish sort of video and it was a pirate ship or some kind of sailing ship, a schooner was sailing through very, very stormy seas. And the band, who I, I think must have been German, definitely European, I think German, were sort of clinging to the rigging and to the mast, and they were being like doused by the water of these <laughs> waves. And as far as I can recall, there was sort of like a new wave-ish, but maybe almost like a techno beat. And the entire song just consisted of these Germanic men in sailor costumes singing Wunderbar, Wunderbar, <laughs> Wunderbar, Wunderbar, just over and over again. Wow. And it completely roasted my brain. It just seemed very wrong, but also full of kind of possibility 
And I think it just blew the whole notion of, you know, there being a right way and a wrong way to get on MTV wide open for me. Because these guys, I mean, these guys should never have made it as far as they did, but they had a very impressive boat that they were sailing on. Um, I, I, maybe you or some of your listener, maybe some listener out there remembers this video and can, can somehow get us the information. But I would love to know what band that was. I'd love to see that video again. Well, see, I was going to say, fess up. You hallucinated that. that <laughs> maybe is- <laughs> it's completely possible. I haven't been able to, to find it, but, you know, I, I just feel like they were like some group of Swiss performance artists or something who just thought it would be funny to make a fake video. That's what, I, <laughs> that's what it seems like to me. No one's ever heard of this song. Wunderbar. Who's ever heard of that? I think it's German for wonderful. Okay. That's all I got. I will check into that once we get through here. I'm determined to find this because I'm not convinced you're not making this up. Yeah. I mean, I'd be proud of myself for making it up, really. My subconscious <laughs> yeah. for generating that hallucination. Update. After an exhaustive internet search, I have found the video John is referencing. The song is called Wonder Bar, and the band is Tinpole Tudor. They're actually an English punk band. I put a link to the wacky video in the show notes. Here's a clip from the song. Number two, you're in a bar and you see a rock star sitting in a corner, nursing a drink and reading your book, Gone to the Wolves. Who is it and what do you do? And by the way, the rock star can be living or dead. What the hell? Oh, wow. Okay. No, I'll go with the living rock star. Uh, Well, in the case of Gone to the Wolves, it's actually not that hard to imagine that scenario. In the middle of the book, the kind of middle of the three sections is set in Los Angeles during the kind of heyday of glam metal and kind of headbangers ball era metal. And there's a scene that I actually had to go through in minute detail with a lawyer be, uh, because there was some concern of a lawsuit. Vince uh, Neil? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it, yeah. <laughs> it happens to feature Vince Neil, everybody's favorite frosted haired glam metal vocalist from Motley Crue. And it features him in a, in a not very flattering scenario. I could pretty easily imagine going into the, um, the Rainbow Bar on Sunset, on the Sunset Strip, and, and seeing Vince Neil in the corner nursing his 14th Mai Tai of the afternoon <laughs> and, um, and reading, you know, flipping through that book, at least, if not reading it. I think I would just immediately leave. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Probably a good idea yeah. once he reads that part. And the funny thing is, I, I mean, I wish I had read your book before I went to LA two or three weeks ago oh, yeah. and was in the Rainbow Room because that would have made it that much more incredible. Yeah. But that is a fabulous thing. It's an amazing place. The Rainbow Room, I mean, it has an importance to sleazy uh, Los Angeles, West Coast rock that, you know, spans generations. I was actually just reading the memoir of a very famous groupie from the 60s. Pamela Day Bar. Exactly. Uh, Which is, I I was 
I was delighted by that book. I found it to be very well written and really hilarious and really moving. Mm -hmm. But she actually, one of her first real jobs in Los Angeles was hostessing at the Rainbow Bar. So we're talking about the late 60s, early 70s, way before, oh, yeah. way before glam metal made the rainbow um, the sort of after hours crib of choice for late, late night parties and all sorts of debauchery. You step inside that place, and even if you don't scrutinize all the snapshots of bygone celebrities on the walls, you just know there's just a kind of incredibly sleazy atmosphere in there. And you, you, you know that a lot of things happen in there that were regretted later. Yes. And you have to go upstairs to the bathroom where many a rock star has thrown up and passed <laughs> out and done all kinds of things. Yeah, we're actually doing a reading there in that upstairs. There's an upstairs room. That's where I'm doing yeah. my event. I'm, I'm really excited about it. Yeah, that, that's fantastic. Okay, number three, fill in the blanks. When I hear blank song, I think of blank. Well, you know, I have a, I have a young son who's just starting to really get interested in music and to become very interested in, in musical arrangements and identifying which instruments are playing at any given point in a song. So, of course, we've been playing a lot of Beatles records for him, you know, the George Martin arrangements, um, because that's just, it's just like, you know, the most fun thing to see him try to puzzle out, you know. So, so we were just today playing him Sgt. Pepper's, and there's a point in, oh, well, there's, well, he got, was really interested in the George Harrison sort of pseudo Indian song on that album within you without you because he'd never really heard sitar much before mm -hmm. and as I was playing this song for him I realized it was really the only song on Sgt. Pepper's that I really dislike are you kidding that's one of my favorites on there so I guess what I would say is when I hear that song when I hear within you without you by George Harrison I think leave Indian music to the Indian musician <laughs> Okay, fair enough. But I can understand why someone would really like it. I just don't happen to... I'm, I'm a big fan of Indian classical music, and um, it's just kind of like, you know, someone saying, oh, yeah, I, I'll play you a really great rock and roll album, and then they play you, like, you know, some, some like, early 90s Nintendo <laughs> game theme music, you know? Oh, no. <laughs> I, I have to say, I love George Harrison. I, I love the Beatles with a the passion. They were, my, they were my childhood. But I don't like that song. Okay. What's on your playlist now? Wow. Well, uh, you know, I've, I've come off of, of a number of years of writing a, a novel that's, that's about metal and, and particularly about extreme forms of, of metal, thrash metal, death metal, black metal. So that's exactly what is not on my playlist right now because uh, I, I don't need to hear that music for a while. After a few years deep immersion in it, I'm ready for something a little bit less soul crushing and depressing. So right now, I've been listening to a lot of Stevie Wonder and mm. a lot of James Brown and a lot of Eric Dolphy and sort of like early to mid 60s jazz, like Pharaoh Sanders mm -hmm. and, and Alice Coltrane. I've listened to a lot of Alice Coltrane. I love her. Yeah, she's wonderful. Wow. So uh, I guess I would just say not metal, which is not to take, I mean, I love, I love metal. I wouldn't have written a book about it if I didn't, but I'm, 
I'm taking a little metal sabbatical. Yes, I think you've earned it. Do you ever watch that show, What's in My Bag, that Amoeba Records puts out? I do. I love that show. And, and I was just thinking about the people that they've had on there. It's so much fun seeing the metal guys come on and, and what they pull out of their bag yeah. because it's never what you would That's think. Right. People like Henry Rollins and the guys from Mastodon and Exodus. It's always interesting. Yeah, yeah. I was uh, When I started writing about metal musicians, profiling them for magazines and so on, I was always amazed at how cosmopolitan and adventurous their taste in music was, mm -hmm. especially the really good musicians who were doing interesting stuff with the form. They were listening to, you know, Brian Eno, and they were listening to Donovan, and they were listening to Kraftwerk, and they were listening to De La Soul. It was just, it was so amazing. And they were totally open about it. They weren't trying to pretend that they were, you know, scarier than they really were. They were, they were mostly <laughs> extremely cuddly cuddly people. Oh, okay. Last one. And before I read that prompt about rock novels, I have to say, I love this quote from you about problems with writing these kinds of books. Mm -hmm. Here's a quote. It's hard to write about music for all the classic reasons, the dancing about architecture quandary, but there's an extra complication when you're writing about rock music, popular music, hip hop, or any cool form of music. You get this creeping impression that the author, who's usually a dude, is trying to be cooler than he is by writing a novel about something that's obviously cool. And you never want to feel embarrassed for the author. Sure, you can try to inhabit the mind of Jimmy Page, but that doesn't make you Jimmy Page. End quote. Now, as the author of a rock novel called Searching for Jimmy Page, that made me laugh so hard. <laughs> <laughs> and I can say with confidence, John, that I am definitely not cooler than Jimmy Page. <laughs> okay, back to the question. What's your favorite rock novel? I think one of the few novels, you know, sort of quote unquote rock novels that I, I read and thought, oh, that's kind of interesting, succeeded maybe because it was barely a rock novel at all. It was just so strange. Did you ever read a novel by Don DeLillo called Great Jones Street? Yes. And I've had lots of people tell me that that's their favorite rock novel. Oh, really? Yeah. But the thing is, it's not really a rock novel. Maybe that's why, you know? I mean, one of the characters is supposedly this world-famous rock star, you know? I mean, a little bit maybe in the vein of, of Bowie or someone like that. Um, but he's really just hiding out in this crappy studio apartment off of Great Jones Street in, you know, downtown Manhattan in the 70s, which is a time when, when you know, it, that was definitely not a glamorous place to be. But there's no music in it, really. And most of the characters are these kind of sleazy hangers-on, you know, like a, like a manager or someone who is a roadie or, you know. There isn't a lot of rock and roll in it. And so mm -hmm. maybe that's why it works in some way. And also, of course, you know, Don DeLillo is, is so odd and eccentric in his writing and, and so brilliant in his writing that... Yes. Um, Maybe any, maybe he could make any any topic work. But he, it's interesting that he doesn't really write about touring or rock shows or any of the like glamorous, cool stuff that you might be tempted to write about. It's all like he's chosen to kind of take this person who was in the middle of all of that glamour and put him in this seedy little rat hole studio apartment because he's basically had some kind of breakdown. 
And that's where he spends most of the book. It's a good book. It is. It's definitely a good book. Let's take a short break and we'll be back with John Ray. Make sure you stick around for the last segment of the show to catch John Verno from Metal Mayhem ROC podcast and Tom Gelati, co-host of Shout It Out Loudcast, talk about several subgenres of metal that show up in Gone to the Wolves. This is John Ray, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, Or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good. Well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We're back with John Ray, author of the new novel, Gone to the Wolves, out now. First of all, congratulations on the book. I see it's getting great press. Publishers Weekly named it one of their top 10 summer reads. Lit Hub named it one of its most anticipated books of 2023. Steve Woodward wrote the following about the book in the intro to his interview with you in Pop Matters. Like the death and black metal bands it covers, it's a full-on assault on the census that doesn't hold back. And this novel, music is a flamethrower that burns away lies to reveal the truth. Because of that, it's the most authentic and exhilarating novel about music I've read. Any music head, even those who aren't fans of the genre, will find plenty to enjoy here. And finally, Marlon James, author of Moon Witch Spider King, says, In Gone to the Wolves, John Ray delves so deep into rock and roll's heart of darkness that it's a wonder he made it out alive. There's never been a novel like this. So let's talk about this novel that's unlike any other. Is it fair to say that it's the first novel that doesn't treat metal in a campy way, that takes it seriously as an art form, would you say? Well, that was certainly my hope. That was my intention when I started. But more than that, 
By a funny coincidence, my editor at FSG was in a metal band when he was in high school. He grew up in Los Angeles. And when he and I were talking about this as an idea before I'd even decided I was absolutely definitely going to write it, we both tried to think of any novel that we knew of that was really kind of focused on the culture and the music, focused on, on metal of any kind, mm -hmm. you know, whether we're talking about the heavy metal of, of, of the 70s with Black Sabbath or, you know, the glam rock of the 80s or the, the very kind of dark and creepy strains of metal that arose in Scandinavia in the early 90s. There have been feature films about some of these things. There have been documentaries, of course, but neither of us, and my editor's a pretty well-read guy, you know, neither of us could think of a single novel that was really set in this culture, even though it's an enormously important culture, I think, and extremely widespread in its reach and obviously incredibly colorful and full of, you know, its own vernacular and its own imagery and yeah. um, just so much extremely kind of rich material to to draw on uh, we couldn't think of a single novel that that was really about metal i mean not even not even in a campy sense but i wanted very much to take the subject matter seriously you can't really write a good novel about anything if uh you have a kind of arch and superior ironic attitude towards your subject matter sure so speaking of that rich culture and the language and iconography and subcultural codes and all of that kind of thing that you were alluding to I saw this doodle that you drew four years ago before you wrote the book on, on Instagram. And oh, yeah. Yeah. I, so I gather the designer of the book cover, Thomas Colligan, used it as inspiration. How did the, the cover come about? Well, yeah. You know, designing the dust jacket and the cover for a book that's set in a world that a lot of people might find off-putting or, or slightly scary or, you know, campy or whatever – uh, is, of course, a real challenge because you want to make the book look like something that people who love this music might be drawn to. But you also don't want to turn off people who might be on the fence about whether they should really read a book that was set in a culture that they might find off-putting or, or slightly scary. So we went through a lot of, a lot of ideas and, and there was a lot of back and forth. But from the very beginning, I just thought, you know, what is it that people think of visually if they think of heavy metal? Probably the, one of the first things that, that comes to mind for most people are all, all those amazing T-shirts, you know, all those band yeah. shirts that, that all the metalheads wear, you know, with all those incredible logos, some of which are almost impossible to, to read for people who don't have experience or kind of for the uninitiated. So I just at some point said, well, you know, why don't we just stop looking for some kind of image or photograph or, or illustration to kind of capture the book. And let's just focus on, on, on the actual lettering, the actual fonts that are used in all of these uh, different kinds of metal. So since the book is divided into three sections, it follows three friends through their kind of evolution as people, but also as music fans. And they kind of spend time in, in three different, very distinct places that are also kind of characterized by these scenes that are based in very different kinds of metal. So the first one is in kind of small town, swamp country, Florida, at a time in the late 80s when a type of metal called death metal was very big, uh, actually globally quite, quite successful. But it originated sort of in this strange, crazy 
part of Florida, you know, and we all know that Florida can get pretty crazy. So we decided <laughs> yes. that, you know, the first letter of the title, Gone, would be written in, in lettering that was sort of the style of a lot of these death metal bands who sort of made their own designs and these kind of really ragged looking mm. t-shirts. Then, then these three friends go to Los Angeles and spend some time in the sort of glam metal scene, you know, like Poison and Motley Crue and all these bands. And so we thought that maybe that, you know, the next couple words could be in a kind of very slick looking kind of glam metal font. And then for the third section of the book, which takes place in Norway, in the black metal scene, um, which has particularly, I think, particularly beautiful iconography and fonts and lettering, uh, sort of creepy, but, but in a beautiful way. We decided that the word wolves would be in a font that called those sort of black metal album covers to mind. Which is fitting because the Count from part three, who is, I'm going to massacre his last name, Count Grisnak, who is also known as Varg, which means wolf in Norwegian. So it just works so well. Yeah, yeah. That's one of the, the actual um, kind of real historical figures who, who yeah. figure in the book. Uh, I guess there are a few more of them in that last sort of more thrilling section of <laughs> the book. No, good call on, on not uh, putting Dead from uh, Mayhem on the cover. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about off-putting. Yeah, I mean, in a way, uh, it was to my benefit that a novel is is an art form that, unlike, let's say, a film, doesn't feature any sort of a soundtrack or any sort of music that you actually absolutely have to listen to while reading it. Um, because, of course, a lot of the music that, I, that I'm writing about in Gone to the Wolves is pretty extreme, and I imagine most readers wouldn't necessarily want to listen to very much of it. writing the book, I was able to just focus on the feelings that were awakened in, in these kids listening to this music, or, or in some cases, the physical impact of the music on them. It's not necessarily a, a novel written for, for metal fans at all. No, I agree. I mean, I was glad that Steve Woodward pointed out in, in that piece I read earlier that the book isn't just for metalheads. It's really not. I loved it, and I'm not a metal fan. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I've read novels about the Vietnam War that I, I profoundly enjoyed. Uh, I've never been to Vietnam. I've never served in the army, and I hope to keep it that way. But uh, that doesn't mean the experience can't be fascinating. Well, exactly, because the, this story is, I think, such a universal one. Ultimately, the novel's about creating your identity as you move from childhood into young adulthood and finding your place in the world, or more specifically, carving out an identity in a sort of underground community or subculture. So everybody can relate to that. You don't have to like metal. And this could have been, you, you could have chosen a different style of music. You know, there would have been some differences, but the ultimate story would have been the same. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it is, it's about these three kids and how they come to, almost in spite of themselves, uh, become adults and, and learn how to kind of forge an identity and, and a life independent of the place that you come from. Yeah. And obviously, the, 
the subcultures that they're a part of are are extreme in certain ways that made them particularly interesting for me to write about. But you're right. I mean, you know, this could be a book about kids finding their their way to one another and coming to understand themselves in the hardcore punk scene of Los Angeles in the 80s, or it could have been in the folk revival of the early 60s, you know, or the EDM scene in Berlin a few years ago. Maybe not that because I really hate EDM, but <laughs> it could theoretically <laughs> have been any of those things. Well, that's why it works so well, because there is that universal aspect to the story. But then there's that little added bonus for people who are metalheads who have all of these little Easter mm-hmm. eggs in there, all of these little things that they're going to get that maybe other people yeah. aren't going to get, but that doesn't affect the story. I mean, after I read it, I was doing a deep dive into, oh, into yeah. metal and watching all this stuff and reading all this stuff and going, oh, shit, that was <laughs> that, and that was that, and oh, that's who that person <laughs> is. And so it was fascinating. I think if you read it and you're not into metal, number one, you're still going to love it, but I think you should read it again after you go back and and do a deep dive into metal because you're going to appreciate the book even more because there are all of these little nuances, all of these little things in there that are or, that work so well. Oh, that's very nice of you to say. When you're writing a book about a very specific world, whether it be music or something else, of course you always think about the people who really, really know that world you're describing and uh, maybe live some of the things that you're writing about. And of course you have them somewhere kind of floating over your left shoulder as these sort of invisible judges of what you're writing, which can take some getting over. Sometimes it's a little bit inhibiting if you worry too much about that. Yeah. But at the same time, they also kind of keep you honest and they kind of they kind of make sure you you work extra hard to write something and to, you know, even in the course of rev- revision and all of that, you know, the hope is that the final product will not be an embarrassment to anybody, the author included. Well, it's not. It's not. It's a fantastic book. Yoo-hoo. Hey, lit listeners, if you're enjoying the episode so far, stop what you're doing and leave a rating and comment on Good Pods or Apple Podcast. I'll leave links in the show notes. Seriously, Rocket's Lit is a new show in a sea of podcasts. Help me build momentum about this first and only podcast devoted to rock novels. The way to build that momentum and grow an audience, besides listening to the episodes and telling your friends to check us out, is to get Rocket's Lit on some podcast lists with your ratings and comments. It'll only take a minute, it won't cost you a cent, and you get some good karma. Links in the show notes. Thanks so much for your support. And now back to your regularly scheduled program. I know that you didn't start out focusing on metal when you began thinking about this book. You've said you wanted to write about your teenage years and the friends that you had in those days and how each of them came to terms with the end of their childhood. Tell me a little bit about that time in your life. What were your teenage years in Buffalo, New York like, and how did that shape the characters and situations in the novel? Well, I mean, in some ways, my teenage years were pretty much like a lot of people's. They were miserable. (laughs) Uh, In Buffalo, when I was growing up, you know, we're talking about the 80s, really. Buffalo is a very different place from from the city it is now. It's, you know, when I go home now to to visit family in Buffalo, I I barely recognize the city at all. It's so colorful and vibrant and so much is going on and it, it seems like a great place to live. But end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s, it was a bleak, bleak place, you know. Maybe that's why some of the bands that came out of that, um, like, for example, Cannibal Corpse, a very, very mm-hmm. successful 
very extreme, very scary death metal band, ended up making the music that they did. It was a pretty violent place. I saw a lot of physical violence in the course of, of my, my teenage years. It was a very conservative place. I mean, I didn't know anyone who was out. You know, I didn't know anyone who was openly gay until I had left Buffalo. I think I was 17 years old and I was a freshman in college before I met the first person who actually openly, you know, identified as gay. And that's just unthinkable nowadays. Right. It's just impossible even to imagine. Sometimes I can't even believe it thinking back. So it was, you know, I, I had a, a, a lovely family and I had some, some close friends, but it was pretty rough, I guess, which is true for so many people, you know, teenage years are not, not are very few people's happiest memories, I would guess. So were you watching Headbangers Ball on MTV? I mean, I, I know that you got into metal a little bit later with Metallica and Justice for All. But were you watching Headbangers Ball when you were young? I would watch it occasionally. I thought it was ridiculous and I, you know, hated it. <laughs> and, you know, there was never a point in my life when I particularly warmed up to that period in metal or any of those bands. Some of those bands are, you know, friends will argue with me that they're, that they're great. You know, you'll, it's, you know, you'll meet someone who's a huge Motley Crue fan. And... I can't, I'm not going to disagree with someone, you know, I mean, what mm -hmm. people like what they like. And I really feel like one of the great things about music is nobody can tell you that what you're listening to is not what you should be listening to. You know, we all have a right to like what we like, but I was really more of a, of a punk kid and sort of post-punk and kind of art rock kid. You know, I was, I was more of a, of a joy division kid, you know. little bit scared of the metal kids and there were a lot of them in buffalo when i was growing up metal was really everywhere it was kind of dominant or, or let's say heavy music hard rock metal was was just that was kind of inescapable everywhere and i remember feeling kind of threatened by it and freaked out by it which is maybe why decades later i found myself fascinated by it too you know what was this world that i was that i did my best to keep away from away from for so long yeah when I did get into metal, it, it was much heavier, less commercial, scarier, angrier stuff than what was being played on Headbangers Ball. But I think I read someplace that you said the kids who were misbehaving the most when you were growing up were not the metal kids. Mm -hmm. It was, and I think this is probably true everywhere, it was the preppy kids. It was the quarterback. It was those kind of kids yeah. instead of you know, the, the kids who stereotypically were assigned that kind of a role. And it really is a class issue, I think, yeah. too, because those metal kids tend to be working class. That's exactly right. And it comes down in your novel, too. There's a real class issue in the novel mm -hmm. that I, I think you did very well. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it, it, it took me a long time to really fully understand the role that class plays in um, what forms of music and what, what art forms are 
taken seriously by society and, and which sort of things, which sort of interests, which sort of ways of dressing, which sort of musical preferences are considered laughable. Mm. It often has a lot to do with class and we rarely talk about class in the US. You know, we all like to pretend that it doesn't exist. But right. when I went back and thought about my high school experiences, you know, back when I was in high school, I didn't think in these terms. So it was weird to go back and kind of think about like, oh, yeah, you know, those kids under the bleachers who everyone kind of like dismissed, you know, and it was kind of taken as a given that they were never going to go to college and this, that and the other thing. That's because those were working class kids. That's because their parents weren't professors or doctors or anything like that, you know, and they probably weren't going to go to college. But really, the reason that they were dismissed was not because of the music they were listening to. It was simply because economically, socially, they had no pull. Yeah. I love that you've said you wanted to work against preconceptions and stereotypes of metal and metalheads in writing the book, and you did. Your three main characters don't fit most people's idea of what the stereotypical metal fan looks like, but I think that underscores the subtext of the novel that there isn't a typical metal fan. So let's talk about these three characters, these these three very different characters who are, are drawn to metal for different reasons. Tell me about Kip. Well, Kip is kind of, I guess, the most obviously like me. Um, he's sort of our, our kind of guide through this world. We're kind of always close to Kip's point of view as, as the novel goes forward. He's not the narrator of the book, but in some ways he might as well be. Um, at the beginning of the book, he's, he's a, a kind of new kid in town in um, the town of Venice, Florida, on the Gulf Coast of the state. And he doesn't know anything about metal. Um, he's not particularly interested in it. But he meets a kid uh, right at the beginning, basically on his first day at a new school, he's been forced to switch schools kind of midway through the year. And he's immediately fascinated by this kid named Leslie, who happens to be in his homeroom, because he's just dressed nothing like any of the other kids in the school. His attitude is nothing like any of the other kids' attitudes. And he just, he just seems like someone who shouldn't even survive in, in the very, very conservative, very kind of reactionary, somewhat rough, small-town, 80s Florida environment. Leslie is black, he's very tall and kind of gawky, and he just wears unbelievably flamboyant clothes. He's really into all sorts of metal, and he doesn't make any attempt to conform or, or hide who he is from the people around him, but somehow he's so over the top in his confidence and self-presentation that, that no one really messes with him. And it, it's kind of a, an enigma to, to Kip, you know, and, and he's kind of from the beginning trying to understand how a person like Leslie, who's openly bisexual and wearing crazy scarves and makeup and rubber pants and things like that, <laughs> how he can even survive in, in this kind of pickup trucks and gun racks kind of world that they're in. He's almost fascinated by Leslie before he's really friends with him. And then through his friendship with Leslie, first of all, he finds out that there are other kinds of metal than the stuff one might see on Headbangers Ball. But secondly, he just comes to realize that this extremely bleak and dark and sort of in some ways hopeless seeming 
music is actually kind of a life-affirming music for him. And he just has a conversion experience um, listening to records at, as Leslie's, at Leslie's house. And, uh, you know, a lifelong friendship is formed and there's no turning back for Kip at all. I think conversion experience is a great way to put that. It's almost a religious experience when he's sitting in Leslie's room and they're listening to music. That's right. And the way they talk about it, it's, it's an amazing thing, the exploration of fandom in this book. And then we get to Kira. Yeah. Kira is a, a whole, whole different ball of wax. Tell me about Kira. Kira is the third friend in this little sort of triangle that's going to take us through the novel. And she's about a year older than Kip and Leslie. And she comes from a, a rougher background even than they, those two kids do. She's a little wilder, a little more reckless. A lot cooler, probably, and maybe the most kind of naturally sort of of a piece with the kind of metal world. Both of them kind of develop crushes on her in in, in very different ways, and uh, in a way, yeah. she's she's kind of like the metalhead that they both aspire to be. She's just unbelievably wild and very charismatic and very, very, very strong in her opinions but she's also very troubled and tends to draw the other two friends into kind of deeper and scarier situations sometimes than they might prefer kip is happy to listen to the music but he doesn't necessarily want to uh take the music literally in any way and leslie also you know passionate as he is about metal you know he wants to become a chef and open a restaurant one day that's his dream but kira need something from extreme music and violent music that is hard for her two friends to understand and probably hard for her to understand herself. She's one of these young people of whom I knew a lot when I was growing up, who always kind of needed the more extreme kick. Often that takes the form of drug use for a lot of people even people in the music world. But in Kira's case, it's really more the music that she needs this kick from. Yeah. So she steadily kind of progresses. She goes from one kind of music scene to another. And even more than her two friends, she's really kind of looking for something. and She doesn't quite know what it is. Yep. But towards the end of the book, she thinks that she's found it in a very, very, very extreme and scary music scene. I'm really interested in the idea of extreme music, like black metal, for instance, because it's so foreign to me. This was really my first experience with learning anything about that. Jim Rulin wrote the following about extreme metal music in his review of Gone to the Wolves for the LA Times. Quote, to enter extreme music is to go to a place beyond melody or rhythm or even narrative, a place that leads to the darkness within the listener. The concept of exorcism is often associated with heavy metal, but ultimately metal is where you go to meet your demons, not purge them. And that is certainly true of hers. The more she goes into those 
extreme scenes, it's like the more she's dealing with her demons. Yeah. Getting to the Scandinavia part, I don't want to say too much about that because the book takes a really different turn and Mm -hmm. I want readers to encounter that. But I am curious about the research you did for that part. You visited Norway. I did. What was that like? Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, Norway is a very, very beautiful country, obviously. Um, You know, I can't think of a more beautiful place, especially than, than the West Coast, the kind of Atlantic coast of Norway with all of its fjords and all that. But I didn't go in the middle of the summer when it would have been really lovely and I would have had a lovely time. And, you know, a part of me regrets not having done that. But because my characters go to Norway very much not as tourists Mm -hmm. in the middle of the winter, darkest time of year, coldest time of year, these kids who have, have barely ever even seen snow, you know, who are from Gulf Coast, Florida and then lived in L.A., are suddenly in, in you know one of the coldest, darkest, snowiest parts of the planet. I felt that I had to go at that time of year. Right. I flew to Norway in, in early February, and it was very, very dark and very snowy. <laughs> oh, but unforgettable. I mean, in some ways, at its most impressive in the middle of the winter time. Yeah, and that's that's brilliant that you did that. So is is the bookstore Helvet? Is that how you pronounce it? Is that still there? Helvet, yeah. Um, it's funny, you know. So that bookstore became infamous in the early '90s when the Norwegian black metal scene was no longer content to just sort of make incredibly scary music about death and murder, but in fact started, you know, some of the people involved uh, started committing murder and uh, and various mm-hmm. other, you know, arson and all sorts of all, all sorts of cute things like that. And the center of, of the really most extreme, at a certain point, criminal inner circle of this music scene was really based around this one particular record store, a, a small, shabby little record store, the insides all painted black, mm. in a perfectly quaint little neighborhood in, in, in Oslo. And I went there just to look at the building because that original record store Helvete has long since been closed for decades. But when I went back, I found to my amazement that there was another record store there that, oh, did, wow. lo- that did mostly sell metal music, but not only. And the owners had preserved the basement of the original store as almost as a shrine to black metal. Yikes. So I managed to sweet talk them into letting me go down there and it was an incredibly spooky experience um, because violent things had happened in that basement and it really felt as though they had happened just a couple hours before i mean there were entire rooms that had where the furniture was all the same furniture and they were all sorts of things written on the wall and and you know occult symbols and all sorts of things i mean really just unbelievably creepy stuff and um it was almost like visiting someone's private museum of the manson family or something is really what it felt like oh my god i took a lot of pictures and i just yeah i mean i i i did my best not to not to freak out
I recently interviewed David Novak for an episode that deals with Japanese noise music, and uh-huh. he told me you guys went to Oberlin together and that I should ask you about your musical career as a singer in the college days. You want to comment on that? <laughs> oh, Dave's just putting me on the spot here. <laughs> he knew that I, you, you know, he knew it would make me squirm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I played in lots of bands from high school all the way through, I think I probably, you know, through my, in my 30s. And um, most of them were terrible. I think that's probably, that was probably what he was getting at. Um, oh, okay. I, was, I was a singer in a lot of bad bands. I was a bassist in some questionable bands. I played guitar in some bands that were okay. I even played drums in a couple bands, one, one mm. maybe two bands, I mean, briefly. And the kind of music that we played was pretty varied too. Some of it was, was loud and, and annoying and noisy, and, and some of it was very sort of folky or, I guess, pretty, you could say. So uh, I've tried on all sorts of different outfits in the course of, God, 20, 25 years of playing music. Um, These days I just play drums down in my basement right next to my writing desk where I work. Well, you even played with Cat Power at one point, didn't you? Yeah, we played a little bit together. It was very, very early on, and it was mostly just goofing around. It wasn't really playing with any sort of... With any sort of agenda, it was mostly just playing covers, which is funny to think, uh, or was maybe almost entirely just just messing around playing covers. Um, which is funny because Sean has become so so famous since then for her amazing interpretations of songs and her, the amazing covers that she does. Yeah. In those days, uh, she didn't even really want to sing. You know, I was doing most of the singing, or, or you know, the other guys we were playing with. You know, she was very much in the background, which is just. Shortly afterwards, um, you know, we all went to see her play her, you know, a fairly early serious, quote unquote, serious gig. And we were just, our minds were just instantly blown. And we couldn't believe that we'd been messing around playing Tom Petty covers in like a pay by the hour <laughs> studio with someone who was obviously so supremely gifted. Well, speaking of gifted musicians, I understand that you have a David Bowie tribute bathroom in your house, and I'm dying to know what such a bathroom looks like. (laughs) Who said that? (laughs) I got that from Ruth Franklin, who wrote an article about you in Vulture. She mentioned the David Bowie tribute bathroom when she was talking about your house, which you call Camp Cedar Pines. Oh, right. Uh, Yeah, I have a bathroom in my house off of sort of the living room kitchen area that has a very, very crazy, vibrant wallpaper that's kind of geometric, multicolored geometric squares and cubes. And it's it's very, very op-arty. And uh, when I first saw that wallpaper, um, I immediately thought of the man who fell to earth. But I then when I went back a couple of years later and watched the man who fell to earth, what's funny is... There's nothing in the movie that really looks like that wallpaper. I don't. It just suggested that film to me for some reason. So I do think of it as my David Bowie bathroom, and sometimes I'll wear my my sky blue mod boots in there when I you know, <laughs> when I have business to take care of. If I want to feel if I want to feel extra David Bowie while I'm in there. Okay. But it's not really, it doesn't really have any real connection to David Bowie. All right. So no posters, no framed photos. All right. No, no. Okay. This next section, 
I got the idea from Peter McDade's rock novel, The Weight of Sound. It's a game called Only Pick One. You can only pick one in each category I'm going to throw out. First one, iconic L.A. music clubs mentioned in Gone to the Wolves. Gazzari's, The Roxy, The Troubadour, The Whiskey-A-Go-Go, The Odeon. You got to go with The Whiskey-A-Go-Go, I think. Because all of those clubs are great. And nowadays, probably some of the others might be more interesting in a way but but the whiskey was just the absolute classic i mean definitive sunset strip much smaller and scummier than you'd expect it to be just the place where so many bands played and many bands you know from the doors to the stooges you know Mm -hmm. had their had their west coast debut if not their if not their debut you know i mean i think the doors first real show was at the whiskey and that yeah. was way before its its kind of legendary kind of 80s sleazy metal days, you know. Mm-hmm. The whiskey has just been so important for so long. I mean, I couldn't even begin to list all the bands that have played there. So it, to me, it's sort of like the platonic ideal of a Sunset Strip rock club. Yes. All right, the next one. Alcohol mentioned in the novel. <laughs> so... You know how so many authors create playlists for their novels for the Large Hearted Boy website? Yeah. I think somebody needs to start a drink list based on novels, especially Mm -hmm. rock novels. And Gone with the Wolves can be the inaugural issue. So here's a catalog of the drinks that show up in your novel in order. And you can only pick one. This is amazing. I've never thought about this. Okay. I'm going to mispronounce some of them. Jägermeister. Yep. On page 70, Coors Light, 117, a 40 of St. Ides, 126, Canadian Club, 131, Malt Liquor, 136, Vodka Martinis, 139, Heineken, 145, Cuervo Shots, 173, Jack and Coke, 174, Pint of Guinness, 174, Fuzzy Navels, 179, Tuborg, 330, Whiskey, 343, Hansa Pilsner, 345. This is one I'm not going to pronounce right. Akavet, 353. And then we end on an auspicious note, a can of Miller High Life on 378. (laughs) Very impressive, John. Yeah, there's a lot of bad beer in that list. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, pick one. I have to go with Jack and Coke, not because it's the most interesting of those drinks, but because the founder and lead singer of and bassist of Motorhead, who's an absolute L.A. legend, uh, Lemmy Lemmy Kilmister, for years and years and years, every day that he was not on tour, would just be at the Rainbow Bar on on the Sunset Strip playing computer digital poker and just Mm -hmm. drinking Jack and Cokes just one after another at the Rainbow, which is, of course, the bar that's sort of at the center of the second of the three big sections of the novel. It's a major location in the novel, and Lemmy's ghost kind of haunts that bar.
All right, here's another one. Metal subgenres. Death, thrash, black, glam slash hair. I know you're not going to pick that one. Speed, prog, or doom. Well, are we talking about my personal preference here? Sure. I, I'm actually a very, very big fan of doom metal. Okay. It's actually quite pleasant to listen to. It's what I listen to the most of, of all those genres now. All right. Metal bands mentioned in the novel. Cannibal Corpse, Hanoi Rocks, Morbid Angel, Mayhem, Death, Merciful Fate, and ha ha ha, Motley Crue. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to go with Merciful Fate. They're a very interesting Danish band that's, that are they're very hard to pigeonhole. I'm not even sure what even, you know, metalheads would disagree on exactly like where that band belongs. But they're kind of heavy and dark, but they also have a real sense of fun and mischief about them. Yeah, Merciful Fate would be my pick. Okay. Now, now weren't they a favorite of Dead from Mayhem? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Last one. And this, I usually save this last category. I always do the same thing for the last category. It's Best Rock Guitarist. And it's kind of a joke because all three selections are Jimmy Page. But, <laughs> but this time, I'm not going to do that because there is a section early on where Leslie is lecturing Kip on heavy metal guitarists. So your favorite heavy metal guitarist mentioned in the novel in that section. This is pages 28 through 29. Eddie Van Halen, Randy Rhodes, or Yingwei Mousting? Uh, Randy Rhodes, for sure. All due respect to, to the other two gentlemen. All right. I can dig it. Well, as I said at the start of the episode, Gone to the Wolves just came out in early May. Are there any promotional events coming up that you'd like to tell folks about? Yeah, there'll be a couple more appearances on the East Coast. How did the live metal karaoke go at the May 14th book party? Oh, it went extremely well. You're very well informed. I can't believe you knew about that. Yeah, yeah, at P&T Knitwear in Manhattan. That's right, that's right, the most terribly named bookstore ever. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was very fun. Uh, you know, a friend just organized, um, some, got some really great musicians together to uh, learn a bunch of metal songs. And various friends of mine, including some who I never would have thought had ever heard a metal song in their lives, uh, got a chance to belt out some, some real bangers. And um, it, was, it was a very, very fun event. You know, I'd been a little bit nervous about the actual bookstore event because it was with Marlon James, who had said such nice things about the book. Yeah. And Marlon is an interesting character. You never quite know what he's going to say. So it was great to blow off some steam afterwards and just uh, shout out some Motorhead songs and um, drink some cheap, nasty beer. That's fantastic. That sounded really rocking when I heard about it. Well, I've kept you long enough. Thanks so much for being on the show, John. Christy, thank you for having me. It's been a blast. It absolutely has. Thank you. Pick up a copy of Gone to the Wolves and John's other novels at your local indie bookstore or wherever you buy books. Keep up with him at his website, johnray.net. You can also find him on Twitter at John underscore Ray and Instagram at the John Ray. He's also on Facebook at John Ray not to be confused with the Facebook group page called Pray for John Ray, although you're welcome to pray for him if you are so inclined. We'll take another short break, then I'll be joined by John Verno from the Metal Mayhem ROC podcast and Tom Gelati, co-host of the Shout It Out Loudcast, 
to talk about several subgenres of metal mentioned in Gone to the Wolves, including death, thrash, black, and glam metal. Back in a moment. This is the Vernomatic from Metal Mayhem ROC. This is Tom from Shout It Out Loudcast, and you are listening to Rock Is Lit on the Pantheon Podcast Network. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. We're back with more Rock is Lit. I'm excited to welcome Tom Gelati and John Verno to the show. Tom from Shout It Out Loudcast is a lifelong KISS fan as well as a fan of all genres of music but specifically all types of rock and metal. Shout it out, Loudcast is a KISS podcast by two friends, Tom and Zeus, who share a love for the band, laugh, and listen along as they talk all things KISS story. John is the host of Metal Mayhem ROC, a weekly podcast dedicated to the culture of heavy metal music. The show presents a blend of feature interviews with heavy metal legends and stars of tomorrow. Thanks for joining me, Tom and John. Thank you for having us, Christy. Very excited. Thank you, Christy. Uh, I'm excited as well. Yes, I'm. I'm very excited about taking a crash course in metal with you guys. And I should, uh, <laughs> I should throw out that all three of us are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network. So I mm-hmm. suppose that makes us uh, rock and roll siblings. There you go. Absolutely. <laughs> well, Mac and Action Jackson from the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock podcast are already my rock and roll brothers, so it's nice to add more to the family. Yes. Th- those guys are great. We've done a show with them as well. They're yeah, great. They're, they're fantastic. So before we dive into our convo on metal, in case there are one or two listeners out there who aren't familiar with your podcast, tell us a little bit more about them. John, you want to go first? Sure. I am the newcomer to the Pantheon team. Uh, located up here in Rochester, New York, Metal Mayhem ROC. It's a play on words. ROC for rock as well as ROC Rochester. Oh. You you too, as well as the listeners, will learn throughout this show the significance that Rochester, New York really does have on the hard rock and metal landscape. So what we do, just like you said in our in our introduction, it's a smorgasbord of our, this is our thesis for the show. We're the bridge from old-time metalheads to the new metalheads. We teach both the old-timers what's going on now and the young kids how it was back in the day. So it's a collaboration, a crash course in brain surgery, if you will. Nice. All right. Perfect. <laughs> Tom? 
Yeah, so Shout Out Loudcast was started four plus years ago. My college friend Zeus, we've known each other for 30 years. Kiss fan since the age of five. A lot of people are laugh. They're like, how can you guys talk about Kiss every week? Believe me, there's plenty to talk about. We stick with the, the standard things like album reviews, concert reviews. But then we do top 10 lists. We have special guests on and do drafts and different things. Uh, we've had Bruce Kulik on. We've become friends with Chris Jericho and Eddie Trunk. And we've had all you know people like that on. Uh, so we have a we we come at Kiss from a very very fun and entertaining angle uh, because lifelong fans of Kiss, there's tons tons of things to poke fun at, but of course we love the band. And then we've also over the past few years we've started a couple little sidecasts. We do uh, what we call the album review crew with our friend Sonny Pooney, who's also new to the Pantheon family. Uh, we do those once once a month. We review non Kiss albums. Uh, and then Zeus and I also started another little sidecast project where we talk about pretty much anything because we wanted a little bit more of outlet to talk about pop culture, you know, grunge music, hip hop, alternative metal, whatever. So yeah, we're active and, you know, check us out. We have a website and it's, even if you're not a Kiss fan, I think you'll think you'll have some fun with us. You've got a Led Zeppelin side project too, don't you? That's right. We do the Zeppelin Chronicles, which also is with Jay from the hooks, from the hook rocks. Also, also a Pantheon. Yeah. Yeah. So those are, we maybe do one of the one or two of those a year and we do a really long form album review. We really get into the nuts and bolts of each of those albums. Cause of course, Zeppelin, you could talk hours for them. So. Yep. Mm -hmm. I agree. You can write books about them as I have done. That's right. Jimmy Page. That's right. Absolutely. Love me some Led Zeppelin. That kind of brings me to our talk about metal. I didn't grow up on metal. Now, I'm probably older than you guys are. I was born in 69, and I'm at that perfect age for, I should have been into metal. But I was such a throwback. I had older siblings. So I was into classic rock stuff from the even the 50s, in the 60s and the 70s. Zeppelin was my jam from the time I was 15. And I never thought of them as metal. So maybe we should just kind of start with, how the hell do you even categorize metal? And, and, you know, and then there's so many subgenres, which we're going to talk about later. But do you have any kind of a working definition, a loose definition that you could give to this genre? John, I'll let you go first. You're the metal man. Oh, dude, how do you define metal? Well, you know what? On our podcast, we have a running series called The History of Metal. And it actually started in 1973. And yes, Led Zeppelin is the forefathers of metal. Okay. Led's, Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, Deep Purple. If you turn the 60s into 70s, Cream is in there. Steppenwolf, you know, those bands are the forefathers. Now, what is heavy metal? Now, I'm sure Tom could uh, subscribe to this theory as a lifelong Kiss fan. Heavy metal is a community. Mm. Heavy metal fans, it goes way back 50 plus years. Here's a Christy, here's a perfect example. This is what a metalhead does. You're walking down the street, you see someone with a motorhead shirt. You give them a nod and you walk by because you know you subscribe to it. So heavy metal, it's an attitude, it's a community. And it just, it's only been in the last 20, 30 years where it's just really splintered off into all these subgenres of there's subgenres of subgenres it's yeah it's completely out of control so that's my definition of heavy metal in a sense yeah so just to kind of piggyback on what john said yeah i was going to name those bands and kind of agree with that and especially the community the i mean the kiss army that type of thing 
but yeah, so you have those late sixties, early seventies band. And, and although kiss is, is never going to be considered heavy metal when they came out in 73 and 74 with their imagery and their show combined with the loudness, the volume that mm-hmm. they had, that is when a lot of people started to pay attention and said, okay, there's something new and interesting and really creative going on that is going to bring people together and kind of let people, like John said, a community. So you have that, you have that mid seventies, you have the bands like Kiss, you know, Zeppelin was still putting out albums. Then you have bands like Aerosmith, who nobody is really going to consider them heavy metal, but you have the loud guitars, the aggressive vocals. There's still some melody. There's still some hooks. And then that takes you through the seventies. You still have classic rock, you know, which is not metal or or hard rock or heavy metal. So that kind of gets you through the seventies. And then I think things start to really turn when punk becomes super popular Mm -hmm. and then, and then you see bands trying to combine all of that into when you have like that new wave of British heavy metal, the late seventies into the eighties, you know, you have Aussie solo records, you have Def Leppard, you have Iron Maiden, you have Priest. And then that's when people like, okay, this is loud. This is heavy. This is aggressive. It's different. What's going on here. So when I read John Ray's new novel, Gone to the Wolves, which is fabulous, it's like the first novel that I can think of that really treats metal with respect rather than Mm. kind of lampooning it like you see in a lot of movies or TV shows or something like that. And he got into all of these subgenres that we just touched on a second ago. I had no idea. I mean, I'd, I'd heard of thrash. Everybody's heard of thrash and speed, but and hair. But I had no idea there was stuff like doom metal, death metal, yep. black metal. And mm-hmm. I looked it up. There are about 20 or 30 freaking subgenres of metal. And I don't want to get into all of that. I do <laughs> want to talk a little bit about the ones that came up in the novel and that John and I talked about in the first uh, segment of the episode. So I'm going to start with speed. How would you characterize mm-hmm. speed metal? Take it away, John. You start. Speed metal. Obviously, speed has something to do with it. Fast, aggression, to the point, just in and out. Speed, speed metal. Um, okay. Exciter from Canada, 1982-83. Have albums like Heavy Metal Maniac and Violence and Force. These are, these songs get in, they get out. No one's ever going to confuse them with being musician virtuosos. But in their genre, they're the cream of the crop for the time. And Christy, you got to realize, again, when you start talking about all these genres, subgenres, it's all layering. Yeah. It's all building. It didn't start. And when you said two, 20 or 30, 
And now it's worth to the point, you know, when you start getting into the nineties and the, Holy cow. too many, there's too many, but speed metal, exciter, uh, early Metallica, Anvil, it, okay. it's speed. Tom, your thoughts. Yeah, I I agree. It's funny because speed metal. When you're talking to when you're talking to metalheads or or fans of metal, to me personally, and I, I'll be interested to see what John thinks. Is speed metal is a term that almost isn't even really used anymore because it evolved into thrash, which we'll talk about. I mean, speed metal to me was a term that people people gave it. It was very easy to coin and use because no one had ever heard bands like accept or, or or motorhead or overkill or anvil or exciter or hmm. even priest and, and maiden it was like okay these guys are fast let's call them speed metal and john said it perfectly these guys were not the greatest musicians obviously they were great enough to make records that we're still talking about but i feel like speed metal is a very of the time type of genre whereas i think some of the other genres that we'll talk about still kind of exist kind of a little bit more active you know coming and going but i feel like speed is a term that because it evolved it's not really something that we talk about now okay so popular in what the late 70s early 80s something like that early 80s and just to quickly rewind a little bit these bands that ended up being the the new wave of british heavy metal and the 80s metal judas priest what you saw in judas priest in 82 and 83 if you rewound and saw Judas Priest in 1974, the Scorpions mm-hmm. in 1974-75, it is Jimi mm-hmm. Hendrix and Flower Children all mm-hmm. over again. Holy cow. And it mm-hmm. wasn't it was yeah. they weren't born with spandex. It, it, it evolved. <laughs> and yeah. not to rip on like we we don't mean speed metal bands that, you know, no one's ever going to confuse them with emerson lake and palmer or anything but they were they were the best of what they did i look at it as like they were like they they were the foundation i mean we talked about zeppelin and sabbath but when that speed metal came around and people like holy crap these bands can play fast and loud and heavy I think that's kind of the foundation for them what came after us, especially thrash which we'll obviously mm-hmm. get into let's talk about thrash speed yeah. evolved into thrash Tell me, what is the difference? How did it evolve and become this thing now called thrash? Yeah, for me, I think thrash, when you think of thrash, you think of the big four. You think of Metallica, Megadeth, uh, Mm -hmm, Anthrax, mm -hmm. Slayer. Slayer can probably fall into a couple different categories. But for me personally, when I I think of thrash, especially like early, early Metallica, you know, those first three albums, it's fast, it's aggressive, it's loud, but there's a little bit something different in terms, for me, in terms of the talent of the musicians. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit, you, they probably wouldn't want to acknowledge this, but there's a little bit more of a melody. There's a little bit more of a chorus. Okay. There's a, there's a little bit more organization to the music, whereas if you listen to something from the early 80s by like Overkill or Accept, I'm not saying that those 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 bands don't have songs like that, but even, you know, Kill 'em All, the first album from Metallica. I mean, even Seek and Destroy has a sing-along chorus. You know, it's thrashy. It's 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 cra- it's a crazy type of aggressive music. But there is a li- to me is a little bit more organization to it. It's got that speed. It's got that volume. But it's not as I feel like speed. Like John said, it's just pedal to the metal. Let's go. Two minutes, three minutes, we're out. Ooh, all right, that sounds more like punk to me. Uh, well, that's what I was gonna say. Yeah. A lot of speed is punk. punk. 
but in a different See, Chris, you got to realize something. The heavy metal boulevard, as we call, yeah. has about 16 lanes. And, <laughs> yeah. we're, and we're all on it. Yeah. It's just different lanes. And, gotcha. the, and the speed was from the punk, but more not punk, but more rock and roll metal. Yep. Okay. And so when thrash came around, it was very geographical. Yeah. It was very territorial. You had New York City thrash with anthrax and overkill and stuff like that. You had West Coast thrash with Slayer, Exodus, Metallica. Metallica. But the thing thing with Metallica, though, is that was European with Lars. Big time. Yeah. And that was the key difference with Metallica because now it all goes back to Deep Purple. Lars was a huge fan of a band called Diamond Head, which is one of those really, really early forefathers of metal. And like John said, they took that that blueprint and tried to Americanize it, which obviously they successfully did. We all know that they're still playing, you know, 40, 50 years later. And you're wearing a Metallica shirt. That's right. Master of Puppets, my favorite metal album of all time. Yep. Okay. that's right. Yep. Christy, there's not a uh, nice tight answer for all your questions yeah, t- and you know tom and i we've been living i'm 55 years old so thank you i'm a couple years older tom he's probably 10 years younger than i am i'll be 50 but, uh, in july i'm almost there okay there you go <laughs> so you know there's just we've been living this for years and again it circles back to what is heavy metal it is not it's done with both Tom and I will finish this interview and it's always on our mind. It is, it's our passion. It's our love. I make the analogy that these heavy metal bands, they're old friends. Yes. Mm -hmm. I can't overemphasize that enough that this is not a fad. It is not, it it's a way of life and it's what we love. It's true. Well, that comes through in the novel. It is very much a way of life for these characters in the book. It's fascinating in that you do not have to like metal to like this book, Mm -hmm. but it's just that added little gift to that community. And it it really (laughs) pays homage to that community. And I'm gathering that, and correct me if I'm wrong, you guys are kind of leaning more towards I don't know, thrash metal over speed metal or is you, or you just don't have a preference. You just pro- like, all. I, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I like it all, but I would probably prefer the, the thrash. I mean, I'm uh, Metallica besides kiss is, is my band. I mean, I've seen them a ton of times. I have tickets for this tour that they're on. I mean, I like some Slayer. I like some anthrax. We've actually had Charlie Benante on our show to talk kiss once too. So, and he's obviously touring with Pantera, another band that I love. They're not thrash, but um, yeah, I just think there's a little bit more, substance if that makes any sense to yes. what thrash gives you as opposed to the to the that speed term that we mentioned okay all no. right fair enough where are you on glam slash hair mm. all right can i start with this one please do yeah, go, ahead. go okay. for it 
This is this is my sweet spot, okay? Because oh. I was at, I, I was I was a teenager when hair metal came onto the scene. The mid to late '80s MTV, you know, had got my license, had a cassette player in the car. It was all about you know, Def Leppard was my first concert. Rat, Motley Crue, Dawkin. I still listen to those bands to this day. Me and my friends talk about them all the time. Some of that music still lasts. Some of it's nostalgia. Some of it sounds like junk right now in 2023, but that's okay. <laughs> but to me, it's just, it's it's stripped down party rock. Obviously, you know the costumes, the makeup, the hair, the glam, the glitz, the spandex. The songs are very poppy, melodic, mm. sing-along choruses, getting the crowd fired up. but. A lot of people sleep on some of the musicianship that's in those bands. I mean, George Lynch, one of the greatest rock guitarists, and he was in Dawkins. Warren D. Martini, one of the greatest rock guitarists, he was in Rat. Tommy Lee, to this day, still one of the great rock drummers, Motley Crue. So these bands, the, the problem with hair metal, when, when, when we talk about it, like our friends get together and talk about hair metal or glam metal, is that like most genres of music, it became so saturated yeah. Thanks to MTV and these videos that you couldn't yep. differentiate yourself between a band like Winger and a band like Motley Crue. Now, Winger has some good songs, but they're not Motley Crue. They're not Def Leppard. They're not Bon Jovi. It's all like, well, they all look the same. They all sound the same. But they don't. There's a huge difference. And John yeah. is agreeing with me. They, <laughs> yeah, don't, they don't sound the same. And to expand on that, those bands all were influenced by the 70s bands and i and i call yeah. it arena rock arena rock that, yep fair that's that's what the 70s were aerosmith in 1974 75 when they came around with albums like rocks and toys mm. in the attic that is you saw that blueprint five six seven years later when motley crew when they came around and mm-hmm. you know they're blatant stage ripoff of what the what Aerosmith was wearing. It was and you know, it's a whole nother subject. Is Van Halen heavy metal? Well, it's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a great uh, question, John. I was just gonna say Van Halen diehards will probably kind of <laughs> cringe when you say right this. Here. Right here. They'll probably cringe when you say this, but Van Halen paved the road for hair metal. I mean let's be let's let's be serious. David Lee Roth era Van Halen is i mean obviously the songs are better the musicianship is, is, is you got eddie van halen but that light-hearted party rock that and the spandex exactly the spandex the front man with the long blonde head dancing around spinning around the virtuoso guitar player with the solos that's that became what we knew as hair metal but you're never going to hear anybody say van halen is, is hair metal nope nope and the thing with van halen again territorial geographical right Right. It was Eddie and Alex immigrants from over there. That's right. Roth, Roth, his roots was in the music of the black community. That's right. Ohio players, all of that. And that's what that magic of Van Halen was when they came around. The Ted Templeman, the producer, brought those elements together. I'm going to throw these last three categories at you all at once. Doom, death and black. Back in the early 80s, I was seeing bands like, you know, Trouble from uh, Chicago. They were doom metal. It was doom is different. It's um, it comes from Sabbath. 
Well, see, John, when you say that, I immediately think of something a little bit slower, too. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. And that's what it is. Death and hatred to mankind. Poisoning their brainwashed minds. Oh, larger. quickly just touch on what we talked about it's called the new wave of british heavy metal movement Mm -hmm. and that was over in england in the mid to late 70s through the early 80s and it was a lot of these bands that never gained a worldwide status but bands like tank and uh satan and tigers of pantang and early Def Leppard, early Iron Maiden. These were bands that were, it was part of this movement, again, geographical. Mm-hmm. It was over there. So when these Doom bands came around, they're pulling like Witchfinder General. They were part of the Doom movement of the new wave of British heavy metal. They were part of Doom. Tom, what other Doom bands would you put in? Yeah, if you, I mean, when you. Think of Doom. A lot of people will throw a band like Candlemass out there. A, a yeah. pen, another band named Pentagram. There's a big difference between the the Doom and Death, especially with the speed. Doom is very slow, sludgy, heavy. Some people use the word thick. I mean, if you listen to Candlemass, you are not going to be pumping your fist in the air if you listen to a band like that. Especially like, and same thing with Early Sabbath. Well, we'll talk about black in a few minutes when we get to the band mayhem and that whole early 90s black metal mm-hmm. scene in scandinavia but what about death metal when i think of death metal i think of the first thing you think about christy is the is the vocals a lot of people call it the cookie monster style vocals oh i know exactly what you're talking you about. you know yeah. if you listen to it like a band like like a band like death a band like d mm-hmm. a, a deicide a lot of people talk about a band like cannibal corpse Yep. They're all mentioned in the novel, by the way. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, in death metal, you're talking lyrically and image-wise. I mean, for example, Cannibal Corpse, if you go on Spotify, I believe their most downloaded song is a song called Hammer Smashed Face. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> I mean, and, I, and I'm pretty sure they have an album <laughs> called like, Butchered at Birth. And their album, butchered, butchered their at Birth. Their album covers are just the most gnarly thing you've ever seen in your life. I can't get into it. I've heard yeah. it before. I've heard it before. It's just, it's, there's just, it's too much. It's just too much. Is this where the whole, you remember in the 80s, the whole satanic panic thing came about and everybody was like, oh, there's Satanism in metal. And is that what they were targeting, that kind of subgenre and that imagery? No, not really. They were labeling the satanic bands like Motley Crue and Ozzy and Wasp Kiss for a while. Oh, Kiss, yes. Back in the 70s, I grew up thinking that Kiss meant Knights in Satan's Service. 
That's what I was and, told. Uh, keep believing that. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. funny. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, but, but the reality is the, the bands that were really singing about it was all imagery. Slayer sang about it. Merciful Fate. Yes. King Diamond. King Diamond. Yep. You know, and it's and it's no different as a I don't want to say a gimmick, but they're just writing about it. No different than Striper writing about God mm-hmm. and that message. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So but uh, there was uh, that's part of the heavy metal imagery that you mentioned before. And hey, you know what? Um, It's sold. So the difference between death and what was it? The black. death and black metal, um, yeah. black metal, venom. Celtic Frost, Hellhammer. Yep. You know, it's again the boulevard, Christy, the boulevard. Yep. I gotcha. You're on the far right, and now you're on the death row, the yeah. you know, the black, and sometimes they go back and forth. Who we'll kind of segue into the black metal? To me, with black metal, the thing with that, I feel like those guys like weren't fooling around with that, with what they were into. It's almost like the music was a soundtrack to the things that they were doing and believing in mm-hmm. just real. I mean, you mentioned a couple bands, obviously we'll talk about mayhem, but you know, bands like dark throne and immortal and emperor and those bands, like the music musically, the music is, is pretty cool, but, lyrically and vocally it's very very different it's very different from death metal some of it's like shrieking some of it's moaning some of it's groaning you really can't understand a damn thing that they're saying um yeah it's 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 pretty but but the imagery of black metal is like legitimate satanic like anti-christian anti-government i mean we talk about the church burnings and we'll get you know the, the corpse paint and just it's it's real real scary gnarly stuff something that i never got into musically i mean i like learning about it because it's metal but yeah yeah it was in um bands like bathory and uh, and it's no different than um you know some of the kids that were into punk because Mm -hmm. of the attitude Mm -hmm. and this was kids were into it because hey you got a 14 year old kid it's just tom and i were they were we were into the more mainstream and um you know, the party bands mm-hmm. there's, you know, remember in high school, very clicky and we were part of the metal scene, but it's like, Oh, that dude is under like real heavy shit. And I like Slayer and I saw Slayer in those early years. Mm-hmm. I was there when it came out. And I remember, um, I, I was a senior in 1986 doing a radio show. Oh, I, wow. yeah, this, my radio career started back then. And we used to get all these albums from the record labels, Bathory and, you know, Celtic Frost and Hellhammer. And, and it was like back then, Christy, it was you, you, you found out about bands by going to the record store and seeing the yes. album cover. Yes. Yes. It's like, oh, this looks sick. Exactly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> You're not even knowing it. Yep. And that that right there is when you your infatuation and I said these are old friends. Yeah. That's when it was conceived. Mm. Okay. That first time I I picked up that Queensryche EP. Never heard a thing of the band, but that logo. Mm-hmm. And I put the needle on and the first song you hear, Queen of the Reich, fan forever. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and that's all it took. Yep. Well, like I was saying at the beginning, this novel got into all these subgenres that I'd never heard of and black metal was one of them. But after reading the novel, I got really interested in this kind of morbid sort of way 
in the early 90s black metal scene in Scandinavia, especially the band Mayhem, mm-hmm. because I knew nothing about them. And one of you, I can't remember if it was you, Tom, or mm-hmm. John, said that you had seen the movie mm-hmm. Lords of Chaos. Mm-hmm. Was that you, Tom? Yeah, I read the book first. And I and again, I wasn't into black metal. I wasn't into Mayhem. But, yeah. But I knew who they were and I knew the story. And it's about the whole scene, the Norwegian black metal scene, and the whole thing about the, the church burnings and the, mm-hmm. and, and the, the anti-Christian, the, sat- the satanic things that were going on, the violence, obviously murder, just yeah. real, real, like, a, like true crime, true horror type stuff. They adapted it into a movie, which I thought was, it was okay. Uh, Macaulay Culkin's, Rory Culkin is the star of it. He plays, Ooh. I believe he plays uh, Euronymous in the movie. Um, oh, but you know, um, Val Kilmer's son, Jack. That's right. He's all, that's right. He's also in the movie. Yes. And the movie focuses, the, the movie is much more narrowly focused on the story of mayhem, on the suicide of dead and the murder of Euronymous and on how that came about. And those guys were just, they were not well, to put it lightly. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say crazy, but you're more diplomatic. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, uh, you know, dead when he was when he was hired to be the lead singer he was he was convinced that he was already dead i mean he would yeah. he would wear corpse paint he would take his clothes off he would take his clothes off dig a hole in the ground put his clothes in there and the next day dig them up and put them on he would he would have dead animals on stage with him he would smell dead animals so he would they would have carcasses that he would cut himself while he was performing i mean this was this was beyond you know what what got what somebody like blackie lawless was doing you know or alice cooper this was like yeah. legitimate legitimate like mental health issues that you were seeing yeah. live yeah now that being said if you were into that music again musically it it absolutely ripped vocally i couldn't i i couldn't get, i couldn't get into it to save my life yeah when dead when he killed himself he it became it was it's really morbid because he killed himself he cut himself up he, he killed himself with a shotgun blast to the head euronymous finds him takes pictures of the body and turns it into an album cover for mayhem and you can still see it yes. online you, ugh. i mean and then you hear the stories about which the band confirmed to be true that they took pieces of his skull and made necklaces and jewelry out of it. And, and this is when other members of the band were like, I got to go. This is too much for me. Like this, <laughs> yeah. this is not right. And then you, and then Euronymous ends up getting himself killed in a dispute. It was, it, it's a real, really, really interesting story. And, and even if you're not a, a metal fan, it's just a really good psychological profile of like kids who are just really, really like troubled, you know, it's, it's in, and the whole burning of the church because they did it for, you know, the trying to promote that anti-Christian we're badass meddlers. Um, I mean, the cover of the book is, is a church up in flames. Lords of chaos. Take a look. It's, 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 it's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. The story is, is fascinating in a really disturbing way. When you talk about Norwegian black metal, the two things I think of is the, the church burnings and the story of, of mayhem. Yeah. 
Well, I have to ask, and and I, I think I know the answer, but I have to ask you, John, you have a podcast called Metal Mayhem, ROC, any <laughs> connection to the band? No, not at all. Okay. It's a, it's a, uh, he's, he's, dis- he's distancing himself from mayhem. <laughs> no, I used to have a radio show, metal mayhem. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So when we started this, it's just, you know, mayhem, it's mayhem's a universal metal term. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, right. and, um, but yeah, I'm not really into it. It's, um, it's not my cup of tea. I like a lot of stuff, but you know, what am I going to do with that? We're not here to say, oh, black metal people, you know, but it's what they get out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the fraternity. I got it. it. And that, again, that comes through in the novel as well. Thanks so much, guys. This has been great. What episodes of your own podcast do you have coming out soon that you want to tell folks about? Uh, every Thursday night, Metal Mayhem ROC releases a new, fresh content show. And this fr- this Thursday night will be our interview with uh, Bobby Blitz Ellsworth of uh, Overkill. We talk about the new album, Scorched, the new tour, and my co-host, his name goes by, he goes by Metal Walt, and he's from East Hanover, New Jersey, and Bobby's from uh, New Jersey. They talk about everything, the history of Jersey, and so Friday, Thursday nights, 8 p.m., Bobby Blitz. Very cool. Tom? Yeah, and our our most recent um, sidecast episode that will drop uh, on Wednesday of this week, the thirty first. That's our Allison Chains kind of non kiss episode. Our most recent shout out loudcast proper kiss episode was pretty unique and special. We try to pull people in, like John keeps talking about the community. Our show, we've kind of created like a safe space for kiss fans who might not you might not be like, wow, that's like that they're kiss fans. So we just had comedian Russell Peters on. If you're familiar with mm-hmm. stand-up comedy, he's a Canadian. He's a Canadian comic. We had him on for about an hour, and we just geeked out about how much we love Kiss. And he said that this it was so fun because his career as a stand-up comedian, he doesn't. Re- I mean, he knows Gene Simmons, he knows wow. all these guys, but having somebody like that, on, that, so that's what we do. But you know, we'll go back. We'll do an album review. We'll uh, we'll have a guest on, and we'll talk about our you know top ten favorite Gene Simmons songs. So. There's always something new and, and creative. And again, we come from it from a, a, a really crazy sense of humor. It's always entertaining. Um, so please we urge you to check us out when you can. Well, guys, thanks so much for being on the show. Check out John's podcast, Metal Mayhem ROC, and shout it out loudcast with hosts Tom and Zeus. And don't forget to pick up a copy of John Ray's terrific new novel, Gone to the Wolves, at your local indie bookstore or wherever you buy books. That was fantastic. I learned a lot. I'm glad. That was great. Thank you, John. That was a a ton of fun. Yeah. Well, Christy, that's class one. (laughs) Yes. All right. Well, we're going to move from five questions to the actual interview. Oh, my gosh. That wasn't. Oh, the interview hasn't even started yet. Oh, my gosh. I hope you've got some time, John. (laughs) Dog. Mascot. Wyatt, the rock is lit mascot. He's a metalhead. <laughs> okay, that's a wrap. 
Stay tuned for upcoming episodes of Rock is Lit to hear from more great rock novelists and special guests who will offer commentary on the music or musical events featured in these novels. If you like what you hear, subscribe, follow, and spread the word. And check out the Rock is Lit vault on my website for news, bonus material, and outtakes from episodes. Until next time, keep rocking and reading and getting lit. Rock is Lit! It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.